From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So have you ever heard of the children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? No. Oh, if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want some milk to go with it. And then this increasingly demanding mouse, like, keeps getting the poor, you know, second person. <laughs> so it's for similar that. in structure to when you give a crazed, crying low life a break. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Daryl Lind. We are both back from vacation in New England and joined today by Emily Stewart, who covers many things for Vox.com, but lately has been on the, the Omarosa beat, which I'm sure is what you dreamed of when you got into journalism. Yeah, well, actually, I really do like reality television, but I miss the whole Apprentice thing, so it's been kind of a journey for me. <laughs> so so this morning, as I was making some oatmeal for Jose, I saw at 731, the president of the United States tweeted, when you give a crazed crying lowlife a break and give her a job at the White House, I guess it just didn't work out. Good work by General Kelly for quickly firing that dog. So that's, that's sort of where we are as a country. <laughs> the... Yeah. From context, the dog was Omarosa. And tell us, Emily, like, who is Omarosa and why are we tweeting about her? Well, Omarosa was a contestant on The Apprentice in 2004. So that's when we met her. And she's kind of been in and out of reality television and the White House and Donald Trump's orbit for the past, I guess, what, 14 years then, which is kind of wild to think about. And she has this new book, Unhinged, that's out today that makes a lot of allegations about her time with Trump and the White House. And she's also been playing recordings that she has of John Kelly and of Donald Trump that she apparently made secretly, and she's playing them on live television. It's in the White House, mind you, (laughs) which uh, raises some questions among some national security experts about the operational information security of this White House, which has never been the most secure thing in the world. (laughs) It's currently teetering on the brink of, uh, I don't know, hackable in 10 minutes. One thing that that I think is is notable about this, right, is, you know, Omar said she she came into the White House sort of immediately considered as something of a joke, right? Like she had been a kind of villain character on reality television. She's African-American. And obviously the Trump administration was not making a lot of like super sincere efforts at African-American outreach. And, and, and you know, she, she came in in that context of like not having political experience, not having – She was in the Clinton White House. Yeah, she worked she for the Gore yeah. administration yeah, and at Commerce. Was, yeah, she was working at the Office of Presidential Personnel. Emily and I, between the two of Whoa. us, have probably read a substantial portion yes. of this book at this point. Uh, so, yeah, so there – So I had it wrong. Okay, but, so but she was actually, actually the most qualified totally, member of the White House staff. That wow. totally reinforces the point you're making, though, which is that for – the entire presidential campaign, basically, when Donald Trump's, you know, flirtations with racism or like the fact that he'd come to national prominence as a birther were brought up, 
one of the go-to replies was, but Omarosa is in a senior campaign position. She's part of Trump's inner circle. He can't be racist. He has a black friend. Of course, the black friend in question was a former Democrat, which like did not quell suspicions that Donald Trump was playing with an ideology that no person of color could in good conscience well, well, support. Either way. So she, she serves in the White House for, for a little bit. She leaves. And then when the first rumors of this book start to come out, I definitely noticed, like not from Trump zone, but from like the White House press corps, you know, like the, the, the sort of official Trump whisperers out there, those who have sources and tell us what's really going on. There was a lot of dis- preemptive disdain for this book, right? In an unusual way, right? Like normally a former senior White House official comes out with a juicy tell-all memoir and people are like, ooh, like, let's get the juice, right? Not necessarily like 100% credulous or like unaware that people have their own motives, but like this will be interesting. The groundwork was really laid by the people who are on this beat all the time Mm -hmm. without having read the book to just like initially say like, okay, none of this is credible. And I was on vacation and as a somewhat witless, credible person myself, I was like, well, all right, this is probably not that credible. And that's where the tapes come in. And right. it's striking. I mean, I'm not going to say that the fact that some of the things she says are backed up by audio recordings mean that everything she says is true. But frankly, we like read in journalism a lot of secondhand, off-the-record, dishy scoops from the White House that aren't backed up by the kind of hard evidence right. and, that and she's providing here. And the line, you know, the skeptical line on her book was leading with the fact that she wasn't having it fact-checked in a typical way. And, like, it's always hard to fact-check books like this because essentially you have to get, you know, you're getting people to attest, yes, I heard this thing. That's not necessarily helpful. But it did kind of make it seem plausible that she was just kind of making things up out of thin air. And if if apparently there is documentary evidence to back some of it up, the idea that she wasn't having it fact-checked kind of loses a lot of its importance. Right. Of the last several hours of kind of Omarosa immersion, what's kind of the stuff that stuck out to you is the wildest? We'll put it that way. I mean, the wildest, I don't know. I mean, you know, she, we've seen a lot about that she alleges that he's used the N-word on these Apprentice tapes. At first, she said she had not seen or she hadn't heard the audio, but now she says that she has heard the audio. And then last night, the president tweeted out that Mark Burnett told him that there was no tapes, which wouldn't he know whether or not they were tapes? Like, he should know whether or not he says that. Um, she says that the president was in mental decline, that she actually <laughs> discovered that while watching him in that infamous Lester Holt interview where he was talking about the Russia thing and that's why I fired Comey. She says that's when she figured out there was some sort of a problem and that everyone ignored her. I mean, she's making a lot of allegations. She talks about Trump calling Betsy DeVos ditzy DeVos. <laughs> but I would say, I, I would say, I mean, again, to give credit where I, where I think, frankly, more credit is due than she was given by the people who do this professionally. She has been responsible for breaking a major news story about the use of non-disclosure agreements right. in the White yes, House. Yes, that is true. Right? Yeah. Like, this is a huge scoop that, like, all the people who were shitting on her book didn't get, right? Which is that, like, there had long been rumors that Trump was trying to make government employees sign the type of restrictive non-disclosure agreements that he used in his private companies. The White House had always denied that that was true. I think the denials always seemed a little bit plausible because it would be illegal to have government employees sign those kind of non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, but there were, I mean, there are gradations of rumors in the Trump administration, and this was not one of those rumors that Let's put it this way. On the spectrum from, like, every beat reporter on Twitter is putting heavy-handed hints on Twitter that this is true to their, you know, everybody trusts the things the White House says and reports them without any context. Like, this was closer to the first end of that. But, I mean, we we now have it out there, right, that, like, they definitely were having people sign non-disclosure agreements, that the way they were addressing the apparent illegality of this is that the White House counsel was advising people that they shouldn't worry about signing it because it was illegal (laughs) and so it wouldn't be enforceable. 
and I think this is where we're ultimately going. This is a very strange way to run your operation. Right. Right. To have one person be like, sign this paper. And then when you're like, I don't really want to sign the paper, have somebody else being like, don't worry, the paper is illegal. So that's why you should do it. Um, and, and that they are seemingly keeping some former staffers on retainer at these sort of para-campaign roles for fairly high salaries as kind of hush money, um, which, again, is something that had been out there in the ether. I mean, I think it, it had seemed like the former bodyguard in particular was on a deal like that. But it's really been confirmed as a result of this book where, again, I mean, I can tell from last week's reaction that, like, the press corps is going to be disinclined to give her credit for, like, bringing to light meaningful things that it's in the public interest to know. But it seems to me that, like, whatever else happens with secret, you know, apprentice tapes or whatever else, like, you know, this is an important part of the architecture of, of the Trump White House. So I, I think it's worth kind of going a little bit deeper into the past to talk about why Omarosa was getting such preemptive pushback from B reporters who are, you know, well looped in with current officials in the Trump White House. About a year ago, when John Kelly replaced Rince Priebus as chief of staff, there was a wave of stories about how John Kelly is finally restoring discipline to the chaotic Trump White House. And between the things where people weren't named but were hinted and the fact that Omarosa was one of the only people who was consistently named in these stories, it was clear that when they meant people who had just kind of taken a personal vendetta-based approach to the White House, who were treating it as their personal fiefdom, like Omarosa was very high on that list. She was accused of just barging into a bunch of meetings where she wasn't invited. She was accused of just piling her shoes under her desk uh, and walking around without shoes on. It was this weird mix of like petty gossip and well, we know that the Trump White House is working isn't hasn't been working well, and Omarosa is part of the problem. And of course, she was you know sidelined soon after John Kelly got in and formally left the White House. Ultimately, after that, but the sense of Omarosa that we get from the book is that she was one of the only people in the room who actually cared about Donald Trump's campaign promises. And she took it as her personal mission to, like, make sure that Donald Trump was doing the things for the American people, specifically people of color that he had said he would, in a world full of Trump administration officials who had their own personal interests at heart. And honestly, both of these things can be true, right? Omarosa can certainly have been less than professional in the way she navigated the White House. But it's also really hard after a year of John Kelly to look back at what he was doing at the outset and that wave of stories that were clearly, you know, somebody in the White House was telling reporters that Omarosa was the problem. And to say, oh, yeah, what John Kelly and the New Guard wanted was just to restore serious policymaking to the Trump presidency. Right. Okay, so secret tapes. What is on these tapes that Omarosa's played on television? So we've heard a couple so far. We heard John Kelly firing her from inside of the Situation Room, just telling her that she had to go. And then we heard Trump calling her after she was fired, asking, you know, what happened? Are you okay? There are also reportedly tapes of Ivanka and Jared talking to her, which would actually be interesting to hear sort of what they sound like not when they're doing their public show. And so that's sort of what's on the tapes thus far. Honestly, do they exist? Do they not? <clears throat> so to, to a certain extent, you also have to wonder, like, at this point, does it matter? Do we need to ask, like, what does Trump think about black people and Latinos? Like, are we sure he's a little bit racist? Like, if we do find these secret tapes, okay. Like, we also have tapes of him talking about grabbing women by the pussy, and that didn't matter either. So I just feel like at the end of the day, I don't know whether or not this will matter. I mean, I think it's interesting to see Amorosa, who's someone who has been in his orbit for a long time, and as much as she's not maybe the best person in the world or whatever value judgment you want to make, it comes across to me in the book that she does genuinely sort of care about him. And if you actually listen to the audio of her conversation with Trump— that came out yesterday, and she put out, like, a very short clip of him just being like, Omarosa, Omarosa, like, are you okay? What happened? And it does sound like there is some sort of genuine affinity between the two of them. Yes. And whatever you think about that, they do have an actual relationship, and 
I don't know, you think about the people around him in the White House, I don't think they're the best of friends, but maybe she does care and he kind of cared about her at some point. So we have that tape that's been played. She's made the tape of John Kelly firing her available. And then this morning there was a tape of a conversation that she talks about in the book during the campaign where Katrina Pearson, who was a a spokesperson, says that she, Katrina, has heard from someone else that Frank Luntz had heard the tape of Trump using the N-word on The Apprentice. Um, But, like, there are other tapes that she claims to have, right? There's that level and then there's the level of tapes like the N-word tape that she doesn't claim to have accessible, but she is portraying herself as someone reliable saying it exists. Basically, she has released a tape of Trump aides discussing their belief in the existence of this apprentice tape that Trump says does not exist. What's suspicious about it is that Trump says Mark Burnett says it doesn't exist, but Mark Burnett has not said that. Right. right, right. Yeah. Mark Burnett is only agreeing to interviews if he's not asked about Trump. Really? Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, which is a little bit suspicious. And I think it, it speaks to some of the larger issues here, right? Because, like, Mark Burnett is clearly trying to help Donald Trump out, right? At the same time, Mark Burnett seems to be trying to hedge, right? Like, he is not going out there and saying these things under his own name. He's preventing anybody from seeing what is in these tapes. He's letting Trump make representations about what he has told him, but he's personally keeping his sort of hands off of it. And that's like a just a very predominant theme in the larger Trump universe is that everybody is always sort of watching, you know, on like a, a big ocean going ship, you know, you have like different doors where you can shut down compartments in case the, the ship starts flooding. Right. Everybody is mindful of that kind of thing. Right. Like there's a lot of people who seem very aware that this whole thing may go down catastrophically. And like they want to make sure that like they have their own life rafts or like ways to prevent themselves from getting drowned. And for Omarosa, like her personal version of that seems to have been secretly recording her colleagues in the White House. Right. But I want to talk about this because Omarosa appears not to have been the only one doing that. There was a story at some point in the last several months from The Times where they reported that, you know, several White House staffers were concerned that one of their colleagues was secretly recording them. Maggie Haberman has now come forward and said that wasn't Omarosa who was being talked about there. And other reporters have now said that, you know, there's this kind of people who have existing vendettas against their White House colleagues are now trying to sow suspicion by saying, oh, that's the person who's, you know, that person's been taping me. It's despite the the non-disclosure agreements, this continues to be the most disclosureful administration in history inadvertently. And I think the compartments model is super useful because many of them appear to be willing to try to protect the president, but they're also protecting themselves here, right? Like Omarosa has clearly given up on protecting the president and has no love for a lot of other people in the White House. But even current White House staffers appear to be – and, you know, we've read these stories about how a lot of people are getting very tired of working in the White House. You know, they're worried about leaving because they're worried they won't be able to find good jobs. It's worth thinking about the kind of reception to this book as a lot of people who are deeply concerned that they've tanked their careers by tying themselves to an administration that is somewhere between chaotic and criminal, depending on who you're talking about, and trying to spin themselves as the hero who tried to stop things or someone who wasn't aware of what was going on. It's not clear that it's working yet, right? Like, what is Omarosa doing at this point? I mean, to me, when you look at everybody who's gone to the administration, Omarosa makes the most sense. She's been on reality television forever. She leaves. She's immediately on Celebrity Big Brother. Like, obviously (laughs) she was doing this. Obviously she saw a career after this. The bigger questions for me are like, okay, a Gary Cohn. What were you doing? What did you have to get out of this? Like Wilbur Ross, if you knew that you were <laughs> grifting people, if you knew you were lying about a billionaire, you already had all of this money. Why go into the administration? And so 
I don't know, for me, Amorosa, like, this makes complete sense before, during, and after exactly what she's done compared to everyone else who's really gone in there. You know, if you're somebody who's had, like, just a regular political career, yeah, like, you don't know what comes next. But for Amorosa, like, yeah, obviously all of this comes next. Right. It's 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 everything that, that she's been doing for 15 years now, right? It's like getting attention, getting on television, moving on to the next thing, right? And that's up to and including, right? I mean, I, I think the recording of her conversation with John Kelly, where he fires her, is not that interesting in terms of what he says, but it's very intriguing, right? Because this happens in the White House Situation Room. Right. And there's like two elements. One is like to have a recording device in the situation room is a bizarre breach of protocol. And I I don't understand how it happened. Um, I have not been in the situation room, but I have been in secure rooms in the White House for meetings. And what happens when you go into a secure room these days, because nowadays everybody carries around with them all the time recording devices in the form of their phones. So it's not like, you know, in the in the 80s, if you'd like asked someone, like, do you have a recording device in your pocket? That would have been like a, a weirdly hostile thing to ask. But like today, like everybody all the time has recording devices. So all the time outside of a secure room, there is an aide who's like, you have to put your phones in this box, right? Because because it's normal to be carrying phones. So if there's a place where you can't have phones, it's normal to have a procedure where you can't bring your phones in there. And I don't know how that could possibly have broken down over the most secure room in the White House when it applies to just like all kinds of random little conference rooms in, in the basement there. I mean, you're you're using the present tense here and like I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I certainly haven't been in any White House or executive office building since the inauguration of President Trump. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that norm had broken down substantially, not least because John Kelly had to put out a memo several months ago trying to restrict the use of cell phones. (laughs) No, 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 I I understand. But it's it's just one of these things where I'm not, I'm just like not fully imagining how this came about. And then the secondary question of why was the chief of staff who has an office like, why was he holding a one-on-one meeting? In the situation in room. In the situation room. Like, it's very puzzling. And I who knows? I mean, maybe he's just really bad at planning his day. But it seemed to me to suggest that he was trying to get away from either the president or what he believes to be surveillance inside his own office. Well, but if you read, I don't know who had a story about it when she was fired, maybe not sure who, but saying that she was trying to, like, storm the president's office. So if this is real, then that makes sense that they take her into there. And in terms of her phone, like, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, but she probably just stuck it in her pocket or whatever and walked in with it. Like, isn't it voluntary to give up your phone? Like, are they checking you? I don't know. I just always thought, like, usually, yeah, they are. It's like you have the lockbox and you put the phone in the lockbox and then you go in. And you could imagine something else, right, where it's like if, if I had wanted to, like, sneak a recording in, what I would do is have something that wasn't my phone. So then I'd be like, hey, here's my phone. And then people being who they are, they're like not going to pat you down because they know who you are. But anyway, it's sort of a minor detail. But along with the like constant misspellings in official press releases and stuff, it's like a reminder that like something has gone just like wrong right? I mean, in like the basic detail work here. I mean, it's also kind of the fundamental judgment call level, right? Because, like, the White House response to Omarosa right now is, one, without acknowledging it, that she's breaking the terms of the NDA that they refuse to acknowledge existed and that is illegal to require people to sign, and two, that she shouldn't have been recording in the Situation Room, which is entirely true and accurate, but also, you know, not only were they not checking it, but they clearly were running a situation where that was possible. They had made they made the decision to hire Omarosa. They made the decision to hire these other people who created this environment that she talks about. You know, they made the decision to hire whichever other unknown current White House staffer is also engaging in taping within the White House. Clearly, this is not just an Omarosa problem. And so, you know, when Donald Trump gets on Twitter and talks about how crazy Omarosa is and in the same breath talks about how useless Jeff Sessions is as an attorney 
general. The fact of the matter is that Donald Trump hired these people. And actually, with regards to Omarosa in particular, as the buzz around the book built in the midst of a current White House, current or former White House staffer, I don't remember, talking about how unreliable she was, a reporter said, well, but you guys hired her. And the response was, no, POTUS hired her. Like, Okay, A, if you're a White House aide and your response is, no, 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 I'm passing the buck to the president, that doesn't inspire a ton of confidence. But also, the problems that Donald Trump has identified with his White House are problems of Donald Trump's making in nine cases out of ten, and this is one of the nine. All right, let, let's take a break and talk about some some broader issues here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So I actually kind of want to ask Emily, as far as kind of the rest of the people in the White House are concerned, have you, do you think that anything either in the book or in the kind of broader foo-for-all around this, do you think we've kind of gotten any insight into some of the other personalities or the White House in general? There are a couple of places in the book, and I think both sections that you and I have read, where he does call Donald Trump Jr. a fuck up, which is... A little bit just disappointing for Donald Trump Jr. I think that, you know, it's hard to glean from her sort of book and the way she talks about herself because she does really sell it as like, I was the one person in the entire White House who saw what was going on and knew everything that was happening. So it's hard to know, like, as much as there are maybe like fun tidbits or things like that, I don't know if there's some grander story because obviously she's telling us the story she wants to tell. And the story is I'm Omarosa, the heroine of everything. So my understanding of reality shows is kind of figuring out, you know, doing this reverse engineering of moving past the editing is, you know, a pretty well-established pastime of people who watch it, right? So, like, assuming that Omarosa is giving herself the hero edit, is this even possible to read as a reality show or is it because it's a book and there's no first-person documentary footage in here, there is not as much you can glean about, oh, even Omarosa can't disguise this thing. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that at all. You know, so here's the thing. I'm struck by, in all the sort of rancor and and people people dropping out and and various different memoirs, that it's not really true, but somebody should tell the story that what happened was, was that Donald Trump entered the White House with all of this promise to be this like new disruptive force who was going to take down the elites and change Washington. But then he was sabotaged by 
the political establishment who stopped him from doing his billion-dollar infrastructure plan and a million other things and got him on board with Paul Ryan's stupid health care repeal. And, like, that's where it all went wrong. And that, like, I believed in Donald Trump and Donald Trump's ideas and the ideas that, like, won him the primary and won him the election after everyone had abandoned him. And it's unfortunate that, like— vulnerable and a little bit insecure as a new president, like he chose to rely too much on these like Washington regulars who didn't stay true to his vision. Like that's the story that I would pitch because, you know, it has some elements of truth to it and uh, makes some kind of sense of things. Whereas this kind of account that it's like, well, there's just a bunch of jerks there and the president is in mental decline. Like, wh- like what does that mean? Like, wh- why was she working there in the first place? Like, what did she think was going to happen? I mean, this is kind of where the I was the only one committed to the vision thing comes in, right? Her account of the transition is she wanted to get hired to run the head of the Office of Public Liaison and had a couple of very contentious interviews with Rince Priebus where Priebus was like, what do you know about coalition building, yada, yada, right. yada. And Ultimately, she says she found out that Anthony Scaramucci was very deep in right. discussions to become head of the Office of Public Liaison. And, like, Anthony Scaramucci is not a Washington insider swamp creature. He is not more wow. qualified than Omarosa. Scaramucci on most- couldn't sell his hedge fund. That was why he didn't get the job. Right. right. But, like, the argument for hiring Scaramucci over Omarosa was not exactly, oh, this is a person who knows how the White House works, sure. right? So... The way that she's presenting it is that she had this grassroots, authentic connection to to early Trump, to the things that Trump was saying on the trail, to the African-American community. And she was trying to stick around to make sure that, you know, the things Donald Trump had said about wanting to represent all of America actually panned out. Like, that's a narrative that I can believe, frankly, both because people do a lot of work to tell themselves that what they're doing is noble, like a lot of work, (laughs) and because, frankly, in an administration that has a lot of trouble hiring people, like both at the White House level and below, you know, she's got stories in here about, like, she was trying to find resumes for, like, qualified executive branch appointees of color, and a lot of the resumes were, like, fake names or, like, had mean jokes about the president in them. Like, I can imagine, yeah, it's going to be really hard to find enough applicants of color to work in the Trump White House. Sure. Um, so, you know, that logic is also something that I've heard from people elsewhere in the executive branch is the kind of you're always doing the work of figuring out, okay, are the things I'm being asked to do and the people I'm working with worse than what would happen if I went away and somebody else were in my stead. But how many times now have we had this like cycle where the White House tries to tell us that we can't believe the stories being told by this former Trump associate because it's like a crook and a liar, right? So it's like Michael Cohen, right? Nobody would believe a shady con man like that. Uh, Rick Gates, clearly a thief and a liar. That That's the, the deputy campaign manager. Um, you know, Omarosa was, again, high-ranking assistant to the president. Like she's a, she's a, what, a, a dog and a We've had a, a number of other unflattering terms. A low life. Low life. Yeah. It's a shame for Donald Trump that he was forced to staff his White House with so many uh, crooks and, and liars and to let Michael Wolf run around there all this time. Um, Trump says that he doesn't have a real attorney general separately, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing kind of feud. And it's great reality television, but it's like, It's really crazy. You know, there's a complete abdication of responsibility for anything here, right? In like Trump's discourse about himself and the White House's larger discourse, like nobody is saying that like – I mean, of course, you don't expect anything from Trump at this point. But, like, he made decisions. It's okay in life to make some decisions that don't work out. But, like, that's on you. And that's actually why the, like, hearing your take on the 
Trumpo Morosa tape, Emily, that there's clearly like, or at least was at that point, some affection left there is maybe even all the more worrisome because it's really, really hard to square that with what he's saying about Omarosa now. And like, we know that Donald Trump has a really fraught relationship with loyalty, but this was someone who like had demonstrated a certain amount of ability to stick around in the inner circle. So has Donald Trump just thrown Omarosa over and is now committed to assassinating her character? Or is there some personal, you know, affection for her there that is getting bracketed off so that they can engage in a character assassination campaign? Well, I think that you have to remember that Trump has fired Omarosa multiple times (laughs) in the past (laughs) several years. And so I think for me, it's part of it is just the continuing Trump Omarosa show. You know, he fired her in 2004 and then brought her back to Celebrity Apprentice or Apprentice or whatever. You know, he brings her into the White House. He fires her again. Who knows if in a year, two years, she will be back in Trump's orbit. I wouldn't discount that at all. I don't know with Michael Cohen, the relationship at this point is a little more fraught probably, but with Omarosa, like, fine. She leaves. She writes her book. She does whatever. Who knows if in a year, two years, she's not back on the campaign trail. I mean, when we talk about the NDA, you know, they offered her an NDA and a job on the Trump 2020 campaign after she was fired. Like, and it's probably just to get her to sign the non-disclosure agreement. But still, they were still like, Amorosa, come back for Trump 2020. And that says something. Like, she's not going to probably disappear from Trump's orbit, I would guess. So it's not just, oh, you leave and we'll slime you as a liar. It's we'll slime you as a liar as you come back to the fold, at which point we'll just assume that everyone's forgotten about it? I mean, maybe. Who knows? Like, I mean, look at how Scaramucci left. And now he's <laughs> sort of back around and sort of defending the president in weird ways. You know, Sean Spicer didn't leave in the happiest of terms. And he describes Trump as a unicorn. Like, I wouldn't. <laughs> it's not right. like a forever done sort of deal with Trump's a lot of the time. Right. It, it makes it absolutely impossible not only to believe in any individual thing the White House says, but even to figure out why they're saying it, right? Like, they're clearly on defense for this particular news cycle on Omarosa. Do they have a greater strategy beyond that? Are they thinking about, like, do they think this is a serious political liability for them? Do they think it's a serious legal liability for them? There are some times when you can actually tell what they're playing defense against, and this is not one of them because it's so, the lies are so tangled that you can't even figure out the meta-truths there. I mean, it appears to me that I don't know that you want to call this a strategy, right? But like Trump's impulse, right, which is an impulse that he inherits from several careers ago, is to ride waves of attention and attempt to master them. Right? Like he never believes that he should let something blow over. Right? So like if something is coming, that is getting attention, he wants to inject himself into it and generate even more attention and make sure that his take on the thing also gets a lot of attention. And he is successfully doing that. Like, we all really know what Donald Trump thinks about Omarosa. Or at least what he he purports to. But like, the Obama administration, right, obviously this exact situation would not have arisen. But like, in general, right, like a controversy that was not substantively important, that involved a person who the White House regarded as not credible and not one of theirs, and who even professional political reporters were not that inclined to take super seriously, they would have tried to just be dismissive of and move on and be like, what you really should be talking about is our advanced battery manufacturing, right? And, like, the president himself would never address it. You know, they'd put out, like, like the third deputy press secretary to be dismissive, right? And, like, that is not Trump, right? Like, Trump wants to, like, grab the electric wire of attention and, like, make sure you get his spin on it. And I would be hard-pressed to call that, like, a really good strategy for being president. But it's it's, like, it's clearly what he does. Right. A little bit without regard to whether the underlying issue will be like, well, he's he's like distracting us from like what I think would be a good political message. But like he's also distracting us from what his own team thinks would be a good political message. Whatever their midterm strategy is, like it was not this. Right. This brings me back to the compartment theory, uh, which I think is the kind of boat compartment simile you came up with earlier in the episode, because I think it's actually really 
it's a useful way to think about it because so many people in the White House appear to believe that this is a boat taking on water and they're trying to prevent themselves from getting swept under. But, you know, given the president's impulsivity, not just on messaging, but on policy, you know, the reports that while he's in Bedminster or in Mar-a-Lago, he'll like come back and say, oh, a member really wants me to look into this. You should take care of it. That not only is there this danger that any given person in the White House is going to be tainted by the overall chaos of the White House, but what do they have to show for being in the White House? What are they actually doing? That's not necessarily something in their control when the president can just, like, dictate the agenda based on what he's heard from Sean Hannity or some, you know, Mar-a-Lago member. And it appears to be that they are currently spending more time trying to protect themselves from their colleagues in the White House by, you know, engaging in retaliatory leaks to reporters by taping all that kind of thing than actually doing the current job. It is not at all clear whether anyone in the White House is actually putting together a record that they could be proud of, you know, even if Donald Trump weren't there. And furthermore, the more that we get this kind of pervasive atmosphere of paranoia in the White House, like which I'm sure now that we actually have tapes that have come out, will increase, the more times we're going to go through this, right? You can't omarosa everybody. There are going to be people who are going to feel that they have nothing to lose by talking about what they know. Maybe. <laughs> which One thing that's striking to me is actually how few people are there. Like at all, particularly when you when you consider that like Mick Mulvaney, right, who theoretically holds a very senior White House policymaking job, he seems to have in practice skedaddled across the street and is like working full time at his second job, uh, running the what is he calling it now? The BFCP or the BCFB? He switched around the acronym. Right, it used to be the CFPB. It's now the the Bureau. Bureau of Consumer Finance Protections. Or, right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so he, he's a, the, the OMB director, right? So this is like a big job. But he, I don't want to say he's not doing the job, but not a lot is coming out of that office. Whereas— Well, I think that's the point that of Mick Mulvaney sure. at the CFPB is right. that there is not a lot coming out. But that's the thing where we're not looking at what Mick Mulvaney is doing because we're looking at the Omarosha's show. Yes, right. But this is something I remember like way back in the— early months. It wasn't transition. Trump was president, but things were not fully staffed up. And I was talking to a right of center think tank guys, and they were saying that it was a a weird situation because people wanted to work in the administration, as Republicans will when there's a Republican administration, but they were a little leery of working in the White House Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to end up buried in subpoenas and like endless legal bills. So it was- And they didn't want to sign an illegal NDA. Well, that wasn't, (laughs) look, I I, I wish I had that. That's not what I was told. But that it was a little bit of an inversion Mm -hmm. of the typical process where like normally you want to be close to the center of power. And even though like cabinet secretaries are important people, being like aides to cabinet secretaries is a little like low class compared to working in the White House. And these guys were saying to me, and I, I think it's been borne out that like this is different, that like if you are a Republican policy person, like what you want to do is go work in an agency that deals with an issue you care about and like focus on that and like try not to know anything about the White House and like just do your thing. And and I do think, Scott Pruitt aside, you know, a lot of that has worked out, right? There are any number of assistant secretaries and, you know, Schedule C aides and stuff plugging away in the federal government, you know, deregulating or just not regulating and not like swept up in this this reality show. Yeah. I mean, I think it I think it varies tremendously by department, right? If you're at commerce, you really are having to spend a lot of your time dealing with Donald Trump's and yes. Donald Trump and Peter Navarro's trade war. If you're at justice, like the fact that there is an ongoing public attempt to influence the investigations that your you know your department does and doesn't pursue, you know, if you're at state and you've had to deal with two secretaries, one attempted reorg, the kind of broader problems that Donald Trump carries with him in well, not talking North to Korea. diplomats. <laughs> uh, like didn't. it's, you know, there are places where in the absence of direction, you can do a lot. There are places where in the absence of direction, you can't do much. And there are places that are being actively 
you know, controlled directly or indirectly by what the president or people in the White House want to do. And I think that, you know, if there's any kind of lesson from the Omarosa Michigas at the organizational and policy level, it's just how exhausting it appears to be to engage in all this interpersonal drama. Like the more people on the executive branch org chart who are spending all of their time doing this stuff, the less capacity there is to even attempt to build a working, functioning executive branch. Yep. <laughs> that about sums it up. Uh, so thank you, Emily, for, for joining us. We're going to take another break, and, and Darren and I are going to come back and talk about a white paper. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So... Unfortunately, we could not find an Omarosa relevant white paper for this week. That's that's kind of a lie. We didn't exactly try. But there's some fun findings on the effects of unemployment and temporary employment on spouses' well-being. This is a paper in the American Sociological Review, the, I believe, most recent issue of the American Sociological Review, and it's by Hande Inanch of Mathematical Policy Research. And she's looking through uh, about almost 20 years of data from Britain from a multi-wave survey of households that they did asking people, you know, how satisfied they were with their lives and also for a bunch of, you know, information about their, what she calls subjective well-being. Are you sleeping well? How are you, you know, how are you feeling day to day? That kind of thing. The theory that she's building on here is that there is a, an existing literature showing that obviously people don't feel as happy or as good about themselves when they're not employed. Like that's fairly well established. But when you are looking at married couples, generally having an unemployed husband really does a number on the well-being of wives. But having an unemployed wife does not have as substantial or really much of an impact at all on the well-being of husbands. There's this marked gender difference in that, which you know, you could extrapolate to say a lot about the gender role of breadwinner and how much more of an impact that has when it's a man who is kind of failing to live up to the expectations set for him by society rather than a woman who has the alternative position of homemaker, etc. So she's expanding kind of this known thing to look at temporary employment as well. And what she finds is that unlike unemployment, where there really is this stark gender difference. Having a temporarily employed spouse has about the same negative effects on the well-being of both husbands whose wives are temporarily employed and wives whose husbands are temporarily employed. It doesn't have the kind of marked gender differences. There are kind of a lot of nuances in this, but the upshot is that Temporary employment is kind of seen as a stressor in both cases, and it's not something that is just reducible to the financial hardship. It's something that appears to kind of have psychic impact on how people see not only their own lives, but the lives of the other people in their household. One of the things that's interesting about this is that it sheds light on what is going on with the gender difference in reaction to mm-hmm. unemployment, right? Where if you If you look at it, right, I mean, the basic story there, right, is like – Unemployed husband is unhappy and his wife is also unhappy. It's like unemployed wife may be unhappy. Is de- yeah. But but the husband is not necessarily unhappy, right? Yes. Like she is uh presumably doing stuff around the house or whatever. He doesn't care, you know, uh, it's fine. You could construe like what the issue is there in a number of different ways. The fact that it doesn't carry over to, to the temporary employment situation, right? It, it shows that the um, – I think it shows that the affirmative value that is placed on a woman doing the homemaker role is high, 
Right. The temporary work does not convey like the full status and security of a full-time job. This is in the, in the British context where these are like formal regulatory categories. Right. Um, but it keeps you out of the house. So you are not like performing the role of homemaker while you're on this temporary employment contract, right? And so it's like the inability to do that, right, like creates a void. Right. Whereas it it was sort of ambiguous, right? I mean, like we understand what gender roles are and how it plays into this. But but looking at the temporary employment helps us see like exactly what it is. And it's that like actually an unemployed woman can and typically does like step into a socially understood role, which is the role of the full-time homemaker, right? And like her husband typically feels okay about that. Um, whereas with the temporary work, it disrupts that, right? You are not fulfilling the dream of whatever is like normative employment in Britain, but also not this other thing. But here's where it gets really wild is so for husbands, the ranking basically goes, you have an unemployed wife or an employed wife and you're okay. You have a temporarily employed wife and you're doing less well for wives their assessment of their own happiness with their employment situation is they're least happy when they're unemployed, next most happy when they're fully employed, and happiest when they're temporarily employed. So, like, this huge discrepancy between wives' perceptions of their own well-being and husbands' perceptions of their well-being based on the wife's employment status that doesn't work for husbands. And there are a couple of ways that you can think about that. One is that Wives are, you know, socially conditioned to be more attuned to the well-being of their husband and to think of that as, like, the important thing for their family, and husbands are less so for their wives. The other is that when women are temporarily employed, that may be for them an opportunity to kind of to have it all, to be doing work around the house as well as having, you know, some kind of contribution to the household, that that is something that a wife doesn't necessarily see as a stressor, but that the husband not only doesn't see as like the wife fulfilling her role, but isn't being super receptive to the fact that the wife appears to be happier about that. Like this is kind of, I think, what this paper raises for me is even though generally couples' well-being varies with each other and has an impact on each other, there really does appear to be this persistent difference between how wives think of their own happiness and how husbands think of their own happiness when the wife and husband have different employment situations. Yes. Now, I wish this had talked explicitly about children Mm. um, because obviously many married couples have school age or younger children at home, uh, but many also do not. And that sort of seems like a relevant parameter in many of these discussions about Employment, a temporary employment, and and what it is you are doing here, um, mm-hmm. and and I wonder, you know, how different that looks if you see a bigger or different or whatever it is impact um, in in families with with young kids present versus other kinds of married couples. Because, well, I don't know. I feel like it's it's obvious why it should make a difference. But you know, I mean, taking care of children is is difficult. Uh, it is work that. Many people do as paid professional stuff, but it's also enjoyable and something that people find fulfilling um, and is like a particularly sort of like high form of the traditional homemaker role. And it seems like intuitive to me at least that that might make a big difference in terms of like what is it we're saying we're doing at this point as a family. You know, one thing that I've seen from other research that is relevant to this is that There's a big difference – this is in U.S. data – in what unemployed husbands versus unemployed wives actually do with their time. Yes. Right? And so unemployed wives tend to do a lot of caretaking work, uh, whether that's for children or for elders or other relatives, um, something like that, right? So typically a woman who is not doing paid work – is doing work that were she not doing it, somebody else would be paid to do, right? Whereas unemployed men do a little bit more care work than employed men, but really not much more, and in principle, sleep more and watch more television. Right. Which, on the one hand, like, 
it sounds like a kind of like a sweet vacation. Uh, but also you see very clearly that like unemployed men are not happy. Right, right. But at, at the same time, kind of that becomes super relevant when looking at the kind of existing data that unemployed men pair, whose spouses are also unemployed are less unhappy. Yes. The, and, and this is something that's borne out in this as well. You know, the, the author says unemployed men partnered with unemployed women are significantly more satisfied with their lives compared to being partnered with women in permanent jobs. Like there's a very persistent dynamic here of, you know, even though you would normally expect the kind of financial stress right. of both partners being employed, unemployed to kind of spill over, that's not really what's going on here. What appears to be going on is this idea that female and male unemployment appear to be pretty distinct phenomena within right. a household. But I mean, it's just, it's just, I think, like, worth underscoring exactly how dysfunctional the, like, masculine identity becomes in these right. unemployed contexts, right? So, like, unemployed men are less useful to other people than unemployed wives, but they are also less happy. Right. Right. So like they're not like taking it easy in a way that they enjoy. Right. They're doing nothing useful and they're feeling bad about it. And then they become less unhappy if their wife is also unemployed and the family is strictly worse off just because their relative status is not impugned as much. And all of it is like you can understand how that comes about, but like that's really bad. That is like a bad way to live your life, right? right? Is like out of work, not helping other people in your family, feeling bad about yourself, and in some like implicit level, like hoping your wife also loses her job. Like that's not like that's not good, right? Like people really need some help, some like Soul repair, I, I think, is like the only real takeaway that, right. like, I can, I mean, this is some of it, you know, like labor market, like, it's like unemployment is really bad, especially for men psychologically. Like, we should like work as a society to make it so that people can have jobs. But this is like a really unhealthy relationship that men have with their own time use is like glaring all over this paper. Right, and this is at least somewhat independent of self-reported gender role ideology is the other thing here. Like, in general, women in particular with a more egalitarian ideology of, like, who is, should be responsible for what tend to be less happy. There does not appear to be that. It's But men do not appear to be more okay with their situation if their gender roles are being disrupted, if they report that they're more egalitarian. And this is pretty consistent with other things we've seen about how even men who claim to be more egalitarian in their ideology often, you know, are still not doing their share of housework. They're not actually stepping up in the home. This is to say that whatever kind of soul repair Matt's talking about can't just be consciousness raising of talking about how, you know, screwed up it is that men are happier when their spouses are in a more precarious economic situation. Well, I mean, that, this, this, is, to, this is, I, I don't know really what I mean by soul repair, but that's why I use that word. Yeah, right? like, yeah. It's, it's something that is operating like not at the level of like explicit views about how the world should be, right? That like people who like, ascribe to the idea that, like, there should not be starkly gendered division of labor, like, that doesn't change the dynamic here, right? Like, people are clearly, on an emotional level, like, bought in, men, to a starkly gendered division of labor, regardless of what their, like, official view is. Uh, and, like, it's not great. I think, you right. know, like yeah. it's, it's, and in a lot of ways, right, it's, it's almost the reverse. Like it would be a better world if there was like less ascriptive egalitarianism, but more just like emotional level work. pragmatism right. that it's like, look, regardless of how I think it should be, like the situation that we have is what it is. So I'm going to go do the most useful thing I can do and I'm going to feel okay about it. Right. Yeah. Would, be, would be better than like being like officially, I think this is fine. But like in practice, I'm miserable and not doing it. Yeah. I mean, I actually kind of do wonder this data, A, it's British and B, it ends in 2008. And I do wonder somewhat if we had more data from the Great Recession, uh, which 
was kind of purported to have these hugely disparate gender impacts and called the man session and all that kind of stuff, but which did, I think, at least temporarily adjust people's expectations of what they should be doing downward because they felt that everyone Mm -hmm. was doing badly. I do wonder if you'd see a little bit more acceptance of people's lot there. I feel, I wonder if to a certain extent, this is the function of being told that everyone is doing well or everyone at least can be doing well and you personally are not, that I think does appear to kind of go away in times when empirically everyone is doing badly. Of course, we're now back in a situation where people think that the economy is doing great and they're miserable, so. Ugh, those man session trend pieces were terrible. That's going to be a segment for another day. Suffice it to say, men's employment is more cyclical than women's because more men work in construction and more women work in healthcare and people don't lay off nurses the same way they lay off carpenters. Yeah, I think I think the lesson here is that men's perception of their success and well-being is maybe less tied to economic reality than generally it should be. Ah, yes. Okay. And with that, you know, our economic reality is that you should spread the love of the weeds to all your friends, your family, your social media followers, etc. You should check out our Weeds Facebook group where we can continue the discussion, uh, suggest other ideas, suggest other white papers, many more glorious things. I want to thank uh, Emily for, for joining us earlier, our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and we will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.